welcome back to Anya's by Alma, the podcast that took a long break, but now we're finally back. Um, and I'm really excited today to be talking about three films, Le Bonheur, Les Créateurs, and uh, Elsa La Rose. And I'll be joined by the wonderful Susan Hewitt. Hey, Susan. Hi, Alma. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Of course. And... This is a treat because I actually met you through this podcast, through a mutual friend. Um, shout out to Zoe. Uh, Hi, Zoe. And <laughs> we love you. And when I was trying to find guests, uh, Zoe had reached out to me and was like, I have a friend, Susan, who loves Anisvarda as much as you do. Um, and she even has an Anisvarda tattoo. So, uh, yeah, I knew I had to reach out to you and... It's been a delight to uh, be in touch these past few months and to talk Varda. Um, yeah, so excited for this. Me too. Sorry for uh, playing email tag for about uh, four months. but Same, honestly. <laughs> that's life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Honest Varda would forgive just life stuff happening. I yeah. Think. She never emailed, let's be real. <laughs> She either like showed up at your doorstep and is like, I'm making a short about you and your life, or you never heard from her. It was very authentic of us to be so bad at emailing each other. Exactly. It's just, <laughs> it's just the deep fandom. Mm-hmm. Sweet. So, like, how did you come to Ani Sparta? How did you, what was like the first one you watched, or just what's your history with her? So I studied cinema studies uh, in college. I went to NYU. Um, and it's a really small program, and I always kind of describe it as, like, the dorky part of movies, um, and you can kind of go one or two ways. You can either get really into film theory, but, um, I'm not big-brained enough for that, um, and I learned that very quickly, or you can take a hard turn into film history. So I took basically every film history class that I could take, and I had a wonderful professor I think Rick Littman it was, who showed us Le Point Court, and he essentially was like, everything you've heard about the new wave is wrong, and all the personnel involved who are credited with starting the entire movement is not really who did it, <laughs> who did the work at first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then I did a semester abroad in Paris, and we watched Cléo de Saint-Cassette, and actually did a walking tour of Paris wow. um, to all those locations, which was really amazing um, with my French cinema professor. We got to take this like insanely awesome seminar with Sylvie, shout out to Sylvie, um, at NYU. And it was basically just an Agnes Varda retrospective class. And we watched, I think, 15 of her films, feature films, and then like some short films that were dotted in in between and some of them were only on like laser disc and I haven't seen them <laughs> since that uh, course so if anyone knows where to find a few of those let me know um, and that was it that's incredible wait I, I want to know more about the walking tour so like you went to the cafe yeah I went to Le Dome I think it was um, okay and then I actually used that as, like, a study cafe because it was, like, one of the only places where they weren't, like, I don't, I don't know if you've had experience with French waiters and waitresses, but, like, they are not um, nice. 
especially yeah. in Paris, and it was, like, the only place where they weren't actively antagonistic towards <laughs> me, and I could, like, ask for the Wi-Fi password, um, <laughs> only to be told that there is no Wi-Fi, of course, because it's, like, a writer's cafe. Um, right. Uh, yeah, so we went to Le Dome, we went to the exterior of her apartment, which is actually right around the corner from there, on, like, a kind of musy street. We literally did it all on foot, even though a lot of it is not contiguous locations. Also feels very Varda and vibe. Yeah, it was very nice. It was very leisurely. Sweet. And then lastly, last uh, personal Varda question for you. Can you please describe your Anya's Varda tattoo? Oh, Okay. So I clearly went all in on the Anya Varda fever, um, and I got this appointment with this tattoo artist who's incredible in Brooklyn, St. Kenia, shout out, um, and they were like, what do you want? And I just was like, a portrait of Anya Varda, pick any photo as a reference, please, and they came up with this amazing traced image of Anya holding up her little Panasonic camera wearing a little polka-dotted blouse with her late-in-life hairdo, which was, I'm sure everyone knows, was that purple dye that would grow out really slowly, and she'd let it grow all the way out to gray and then cut it and then dye it again. <laughs> so it's kind of in the halfway phase of the purple and gray, um, and you can see that in the tattoo. Um, and that's the tattoo. Iconic. Yeah, I've, I've flirted with the idea of getting an Anya Sparta tattoo. I thought about getting the, like... Cine Tamari like logo. Oh my god, the first bullet point on my list right now is Cine Tamari has the best logo. It really does. It's just a cat. <laughs> yeah, it, it like she devoted herself to cats and the ocean and making movies, and we love that. Yeah, sweet. Well, let's dive in. I guess we can start with Le Bonheur. That's like the you know our crown jewel today. Yes, exactly. Um, had you seen this before? I had. It was actually one of, probably in the first five of her films that I saw. And it's kind of like when you get into a new director for the first time and you're kind of figuring out their tone and when they're joking or not. It's like when you meet a new person in general and you're kind of mm-hmm. sussing out when the, what their sense of humor is. Um, and I have to say, I think this is the one where I kind of understood, like, oh, like, this is how she communicates with us, is, like, kind of this cloying idealism, but we'll get into that later. Wow, that's so interesting, because I, this was pretty early from, in my exposure to Anya Sparta. I, like, wasn't ready to interpret it, I guess, or, like, Mm -hmm. didn't really get it. Um, I found it super difficult, and I was like, I think I liked it, but I just have no idea um, how it was operating. Yeah. And now I feel like every time I go back, I appreciate it more and more it's it's so covert it's it's incredible um and I think like all of her male counterparts in France at the time kind of didn't weren't really operating on her level and it's there's just a huge gulf between her and like Godard and Truffaut in that way even though they technically were making movies on the same themes the way that they're articulated is very very different we could go we could just like talk about the beginning and then see where it goes yeah i mean those opening credits are uh something to talk about for sure yeah how do you how do you feel about the tone of them like what feeling do you get from them um i think it's changed over the watches but 
And maybe that's for knowing what's coming. I had never noticed until this watch, she cuts to the same sunflower. I don't know why in my head, I just thought it was like assorted sunflowers of different types. I actually have never noticed that. (laughs) It's like that one sunflower that's just like the platonic ideal of a sunflower. It's so perfect. It's so yellow. And it has a little fly crawling around on it too. Yes. (laughs) Which I think Anis Varda like says this movie is like, a perfect summer peach and mm-hmm. it's about the worm inside or whatever so that mm-hmm. I thought of that when I saw that bug like in the middle of the flower yeah the first time I watched it was in class and I remember our professor being like yeah like aren't the aren't the opening credits like really scary and kind of menacing and I was like I guess they kind of are like these <laughs> blurred figures in the background which is kind of a look that we usually reserved for like a stalker in the background when you have that like rack focus from like your main character to like someone who's looking at them in a creepy way yeah yeah and they're all like in matching red um yes yeah um the use of matching costumes in this is like so creepy to me it's so stepford wise i like to think that anya's is very anti uh dressing moms and daughters in matchy matchy clothes which is a stance that i agree with yeah i think it's safe to say <laughs> it's very weird. it's very weird <laughs> um yeah and and then we also get the like mozart off the bat <laughs> So the first time I saw this movie was with my friend Jake, who was actually on the first episode of this podcast, so shout out to Jake. Um, And he had seen it before and is just um, a much smarter dude than I am, so he he remarked, I didn't realize this, that the instrumentation for that Mozart piece is, like, different than it's traditionally played. I think it's traditionally, like, a string quartet yeah, or something. Yeah, and it's it's all flutes in this, right? It's, like, flute yeah, and it's clarinet. Yeah, it's all, like, woodwinds and yeah. bassoon. Yeah. For those, I guess, like, in the know of that, it's also a little, like, off and disconcerting that it's been... The instrumentation is different. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was super interesting. Um, it's something I always think about now. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just a flute hater, so I... Oh, no, I play flute. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's hilarious. Why are you a flute hater? It's just like, I guess just like arrangements like that where it's all like, well, flute is inherently fluttery, isn't it? It's kind of in the name, but (laughs) there's just something about it when it's like combined in that way where it's just a little cloying, but I can under, I can appreciate it in a broader context. It's just this kind of arrangement. I'm like, oh, it's hard to listen to, but that's hilarious it just like reminded me of my childhood of like being in woodwind quintets and like dragging my ass to rehearsal for that so it's not a great uh association for me either core memory unlocked yeah exactly oof um and then we cut to like the first of many idyllic picnics with this family Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i I guess I should mention, like, off the bat, I got married, like, a month and a half ago. Um, Congratulations. And thank you. As a person that, like, I never really thought I was going to get married. But I remember, like, before I was ever, like, dating anyone or anything, I remember when I first saw this movie, I was, like, 20 years old, and I used to be, like, God, like, I really, like, want to be with somebody who, like, 
really loves me and all that, but, like, I don't want to date anybody, because, like, then you have to, like, text them and, like, (laughs) ask them how many siblings they have and that kind of thing. I just want to, like, wake up one day in a field with someone and we're having a picnic and it's nice uh which is how they kind of wake up in this movie you're kind of like thrust into the middle of this presumably happy marriage and they're both really really gorgeous and have perfect skin and they're very shiny people and it's just funny that like when I first watched this I was that age where I was like that would be nice (laughs) and now I'm like (laughs) After watching this movie and after getting married, I'm like, this is hell. Yikes. Um, yeah. To be clear, I love being married. It's great. <laughs> but <laughs> this movie about marriage is hell. Yeah, and then they get in his truck and they go to the, like, aunt and uncle's spot. Which then, like, the juxtaposition of that sort of seemingly ideal love that they have and the, the day that they're coming from. And then it's just, like, cut to aunt like watching tv and, she's like, watching... knitting <laughs> yeah knitting i thought of you there's a lot of knitting <laughs> i know every old woman in this movie is knitting <laughs> yes. and scowling which is <laughs> i do that already <laughs> yes i'm like i don't need to be old for that that's just day-to-day life you're like transported into this kind of like dumpy version of the comfort of like knowing someone for a really long time where you're just kind of both grunting at each other yeah, and she's she's like watching a scene on the TV that's just like the scene we just left where it's exactly. like this couple at the foot of the tree and like what's the dialogue is so weird and I don't know what it is like some soap opera or something. It's very French. <laughs> but she's like, "Oh, tell me about the revolution of species." And he's like, "I think you mean the evolution oh, of species." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, he's basically being like, "You dumb woman." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But she but the but their in-laws are the aunt and uncles. They're she's kind of looking at the screen like kind of wistfully, like you know, like how old moms kind of will watch like shows like Outlander because it's like really romantic. Yeah. I mean, at least my mom does and I'm like, "Mom, you're happily married. <laughs> Why are you watching this filth?" <laughs> Um, and then there's the her own wedding picture is just like framed above the TV. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think is so interesting about this movie and what I've noticed in real life also is that like people are obsessed with getting married and like weddings and all this stuff. And you kind of see that in this movie kind of thrown in throughout like people's wedding photos up on a wall or like the girl who gets fitted for the wedding dress and all the little kids in town are looking at her through the window like she's famous and like the whole village stops to look at her going to the wedding and I just think it's really interesting is like when you are young and people know that you like maybe will be getting married they don't stop asking you about it um and also what I think is interesting is like that that gender segregation in the film of like her workplace which is a really really feminine space like you don't ever really see a man interacting with anybody in her little shop and then his workplace is a is a wood shop uh, which is very very loud there's sawdust everywhere and it's just a bunch of dudes and like their apprentice who's like a 12 year old kid Um, and I love how uh, Varda connects these two spaces because like that night in the next day of the film you see like she wants to go see this movie and she's like it's Jean Moreau and Brigitte Bardot in, in their first film together which I think would have been Viva Maria 
Um, And he's, I looked it up. (laughs) Um, And he's like, oh, I don't really want to go. It's not a Western, blah, blah, blah. But it is a Western, (laughs) so that doesn't make sense. The next shot is him at the wood shop that day. Um, and not him, but his coworker shuts a locker door, and there's a pinup photo of Brigitte Bardot on the yeah. locker, like immediately after they're talking about that. And it's just so, it's just so smart that she's like, here are these the same woman, but like men think about Brigitte Bardot in a different way to women. Totally, and like immediately after he says, like I prefer you to either Brigitte Bardot mm-hmm. or John Moreau. Yeah, I completely agree. The use generally of like advertisements and pinups and celebrity mm-hmm. photos and just like various iconography of western ideals of beauty and happiness yeah like um, that sylvie vartan poster in the background yeah i can't even pronounce her last name in a french way so i'm not gonna try but like <laughs> that yay yay girl look was so in at this time and it's like the most like urbane modern woman who's like in America, they would have been like, baby, are you liberated? Like, that kind of woman. Like, the independent woman who still, like, loves men somehow. Um, Sylvie Vartan kind of was that, and there's a huge poster of her in the background of the wood shop, like, outside across the street, and then it comes to be that Emily from the post office looks exactly like Sylvie Vartan. Right, yeah. <laughs> Slash, like, all, so many women in this movie just look exactly like each other. Yep. Yep, just varying degrees of shiny hair. Yeah. Oh, let's talk about the introduction of um, Emily and generally her character. It's the first time that he sees her in the post office. There's like a very weird sequence I hadn't remembered, which is that he's driving toward there and then it's just like cross-cutting between that and like a lion. Oh, um, yeah, yeah just kind of like stalking with a lioness and then it cuts to the stamps where she's looking at like various wild animals on stamps and yeah then like okay we're in the post office but it's this very like strange but they're uh, like gorgeous like national geographic caliber shots of these lions yeah and you're kind of like are they implying that there's a zoo in yeah, this town exactly. or what and i kind of wonder where she shot that footage like that's it was just a really interesting choice yeah, there is later mention of a zoo because he's like with Emily and he says, oh, I guess the lunch that my wife packed me, like I'll just give it to the lions in the zoo yeah. or something. Um, which again, just so clever drawing these spaces and these mm-hmm. things together. Not necessarily like very directly, but just... And I think it's interesting because he also kind of looks like a lion or he looks very feline. Mm. He's a very, very pretty actor. And I think that shot where basically they come face to face and there's these like really uncomfortably close um extreme close-ups not extreme but like very close-up close-ups of the two of them kind of making eye contact for the first time and the way that he looks at her is like I don't know how to describe it it's like kind of a Cheshire cat smile where the it's just he's looking down at her like literally down at her and he kind of does this smile and you know immediately what he's thinking about her. Ugh. You know, immediate. you can sense, like, immediately that there's attraction. And it's just like, and you know that he's married already. And it's just like, you have that feeling of, like, ugh, this again. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty gross. And also, whenever he's in that little phone booth making his calls, they feel still somehow, like, performative toward her. Yeah, he's kind of, his body's kind of turned out towards her and... 
he's talking loudly and you can hear him through the glass. Mm-hmm. Which is exactly how a lot of men are whenever women are around. They're just like a little extra puffed up and a little loud and taking up a little more space. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Yep. Uh, it's funny. I wrote that he looks like Bill Hader. He does. I was thinking the same thing, but like Bill Hader looks so nice and sweet. I know. I know. <laughs> I trust like Bill Hader. Bill Hader. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh God. Um, also, I'll just like my favorite trivia about this movie is that like it's actually his wife and his kids. Oh really? Yeah, like that actor and Therese. Like, yeah, the wife's name. Like that's actually his wife and his two kids. Which how bizarre. Would the production oh be like? I would not like that. No, so uncomfortable. Then again, what's more French than having an affair? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this character of Emily, I think, is very interesting. Um, I consume like a lot of '60s content. I was very, very into it in like high school and things like that. There was this thing in the '60s where like women who wanted to live alone and not get married really, really young and wanted to live in a city and have a job, they kind of became this, like, thing for men who wanted to have affairs and things like that to chase after, because they were, men perceived them as being available to them. And there would kind of be this whole thing of, like, oh, but you're, like, a liberated woman, so, like, you are available to sleep with me if I want you to, and... I just think it's interesting she, like, is the only woman we see in this movie who's, like, interacting with men who aren't related to her. And she's, like, in a public space at her job interacting with, like, a lot of young men. And we see her dancing with a lot of different young men at the dance in the village. And meanwhile, I feel like his wife, Therese, is, like, solely operating in this, like, really feminine, really familial space. Yeah. Um, I just thought that was very interesting. I think Emily is a very interesting character um, and very of her time. Well observed. And, I, and especially, like, I think that's so apparent in uh, the conversation they had a, have after having sex. Mm-hmm. Where, like, he's sort of just saying these insane things. Um, yeah, and he tells her that he loves her for, like, the fifth time in the first two days. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, and he's like, I love you. You're really good at sex. I love yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> he says making love, which is the grossest Ugh. term in Ugh. the entire world. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think like she also is kind of that unapologetic woman who like has affairs with people and she's like Moi aussi je t'aime. Je me sens toute heureuse. Sois heureux aussi. Et ne t'inquiète pas, je suis libre, contente et tu n'es pas le premier. I want you to know that like you're not my first and all this stuff and it and she's very like unapologetic about the fact that there's a wife in this situation she doesn't seem very remorseful and it there's a lot of like scenes of them doing weird kissing and then a lot of scenes of Therese holding it down in the household and like caring for all the kids and then you see more of Emily, like, in the post office being cute and having really shiny hair. And there's a lot of cutting between the two of them that's really heartbreaking because, obviously, we know the dramatic irony of, like, Therese, like, keeping the whole household on lock and making everything nice for her husband and then knowing that he's 
doing these things with someone who's literally in the same village as them. Yeah, there's that part where, like, she's in the market and then Emily mm-hmm. just comes downstairs. <laughs> They're, like, right yep. there. <laughs> yep. Um, and, of course, the dance sequence, which probably when I, like, think about this movie in my memory um, through the years, that's the scene that always is, like, the, at the, like, forefront of my mind. Why do you why do you think that is? It's a good question. I mean, I had never seen anything like that as far as camera movement of just like passing back and forth mm-hmm. between these this segmented the space, yeah, and having the blocking such that you just see these couples in different combination, and he's just like floating between wife and mistress with like no remorse or mm-hmm. like nervousness on his face. Everyone's just so goddamn happy. <laughs> yeah, that's what what kills me about his behavior is that he doesn't alter anything about... And I think this is, like, a compliment to the actor. And I think, obviously, Anya's directed this incredible performance out of him. But, like, he doesn't alter himself around Therese at all. Like, there's no being awkward. There's no sweating. There's no being nervous about what's going on. Like, he is so confident that nothing will go wrong and that everything will work out just fine. Yeah, exactly. Which it doesn't. Nope, spoiler, it does not. Um, yep. Yeah, and even in the moment where he, like, you know, drops the bombshell, he has, like, maybe a flicker of, like, oh, maybe I won't tell you. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, he's ah, like... I'm going to tell you. <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, it's going to be fine. Like, you're so good to me. Like, thank you for letting me continue to have this affair. Yeah, it's just an apple tree outside our orchard. <laughs> oh god, the metaphor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love I love that scene at the dance. It kind of reminds me of like I think France at this time was like just getting out of its period piece fever. Like they were very into period pieces that heavily featured like dances and things like that, like a big ball. Um, and I, th- I think it's interesting. It kind of reminds me of like a very formal like village ball in a period piece like Pride and Prejudice or something and everyone's switching partners and it's chaotic and there's so much opportunity for like intrigue like historically like in novels of of that period it's like everything that's worth knowing happens at the dance but nothing happens at this dance (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's just pure happiness and color Mm -hmm. and then right after that is the sex scene which just a side note that's one of my favorite sex scenes of all time, just, like, how it's mm-hmm. filmed with a sort of, like, fragmented body parts next to each other. Yeah, I think that is so beautiful. And you kind of can't tell which woman, which woman is which. Yeah. it's Yeah, it's very beautiful. There are actually a lot in Jaco de Nantes. There are all these really beautiful close-up still static shots of Jacques Demy's different body parts, like his hands and like the wrinkles under his chin and things like that, his crow's feet. Um, And it really reminded me of that. And we all know that she was a photographer before making movies. And I just love those little moments where you can see like, wow, this woman is like actually also a really incredible photographer and she still finds a way to bring still photography into her very moving films. (laughs) Absolutely. And this is her first in color, and she, like, 
mm-hmm. leans into color. I know. Um, everything is just so... Like, I love how everything inside um, Francois and Therese's apartment, like, everything is that, like, lacquered, really bright blue and red and, like, all those colors. And you don't see that in movies anymore, like, ever. Yeah, the only other thing I can think of is, like, Jacques Demy's movies. So I was just sort of like, yeah, oh, I exactly. see where he gets it. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I just... I think... I miss that about things that were shot in film. I feel like everything is really washed out now. Like, especially if you see, like, a Marvel movie, you're like, oh, my God, I can't see anything. It's all, like, <laughs> beige and gray. Um, and it's just really refreshing to see something so poppy, um, even if it's really sad and upsetting. Absolutely. She kind of references a lot of, not a lot, but, like, a couple of painters in this film. And I think most, like, most obviously she has the Marc Chagall stamp that gets like a center frame shot um right with the the bride and groom mm-hmm. and she lo- i know that she like really loved mark chagall's work and like references him a lot in all of her movies and if you like ever want a fun project for yourself it's really fun to see all the references to like artists that she really loved throughout um her career and she kind of weaves it in and then i guess like spoiler alert at the end when Therese um, drowns, either drowns herself or drowns by accident. We don't, it's not clear. Um, It really reminded me of Ophelia, the painting of Ophelia by uh, J.E. Millet. Yeah. um, Which is like, she's lying in the water and in the reeds. Um, I always thought that that shot of her, um, when Francois was trying to resuscitate her, kind of um, really looked like that painting. And I've always wanted to know if that was what she was referencing because the model for that painting Lizzie Siddle um like kind of the, one of the first like supermodels if you want to call her that she almost died during the painting of that he was so into that painting like it was like he was an obsession and he had these little tea lights under the cast iron bathtub to keep the water warm for her and it actually all the tea lights went out and she got really 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 sick for like several weeks during the painting of this. Wow. Yeah, that's I didn't think of that painting, but actually my partner just showed me that painting like maybe a month ago because it's one of his favorites. Um, I didn't know that story either, but I think like that notion of the suffering muse is something that pervades Anya Sparta's work. And she's mm-hmm. like always turning her gaze toward that muse that, you know, gets forgotten in the wake of like the great art that she may have inspired um and it's such a i'm sure it was it's such an epidemic in like french art especially yeah um that men are championed above all else especially when there was like usually or often a woman that like kind of suffered at at their expense um not just in film history but also in like other media as well so i'm sure she was just looking around her being like i hate it here (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> but yeah and it also that kind of is related to my next point on my sloppy notes but I can't stand how like every time Francois goes to Emily's apartment which it usually seems like he's just dropping by first of all um, and when she sits near him while he's trying to like nail some shelves together and things like that he just keeps telling her that she's a distraction and that she's tempting and all this stuff like every scene with her he talks about how tempting she is and it kind of reminds me of that like 
classic affair thing where it's like, oh, this woman caused a man to stumble. Yeah. Um, yeah which is actually, yeah. like, a very evangelical, like, fundamentalist thing. But, yeah. I just think it's really interesting. And I think Anya Sparta kind of understands that. Yeah, definitely. And then that scene where she sits, uh, he says she sits too close as he's doing the shelves, he just sort of, like, arranges her, like, a piece of furniture. He's like, mm-hmm. no, you sit there. And it's so gross. Yeah. Also, just, like, the number of floral arrangements in... I feel like at some point we'll have to talk about the role of, like, flowers. Yeah, everybody has movie. flowers. Yeah, everybody has flowers. A vase of flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhere between living and dead, they're, like... Yeah, you never um, see, like, potted plants. It's all vase flowers, like, on their way to being dead and dry it's very interesting yeah um and so many just of the especially young women i mean as we were sort of talking about the the grumpy older women i guess just hold knitting needles Mm -hmm. um but the young women hold bouquets of flowers and it's like Mm -hmm. just everywhere in this movie and i feel like it's kind of an interesting motif Mm -hmm. especially i think they're wildflowers generally that we see at least around, like, Therese, so it's, like, this idea of something that just grows out in nature but is now being contained and arranged. Yeah, I love I love how when she, when Therese brings the flowers into her a mother-in-law's house, again, I don't know the relation, it's not clear, but she brings them in the house and she goes, oh, well, we have plenty growing in the garden, I don't know why you brought these to me. <laughs> uh, which is, like, she's giving them this, like, beautiful bouquet that's, like, wedding caliber arrangement. Uh, it's just really funny that this old woman is like, uh, they're all out in the yard anyway. Like, thanks for bringing the trash inside. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> kind Doesn't of she like hand them back to her at the end? Yeah. Like, you keep yeah. your flowers. <laughs> yep. I think that's so funny. But yeah, there. I just, I mean, obviously the title of the of the film is happiness, and I think, um, a lot of time is spent on like what creates happiness for. Francois especially and he kind of has this totally bogus conversation with Emily where um he's like you are a source of happiness for me and like I can pass that happiness on to my household where I live and all this stuff and she talks about how she doesn't like sadness and she tries to avoid it and I think it's it's a really interesting conversation when like their happiness is potentially at his family's expense. Elle est tendre. Elle est toujours présente. Et nos enfants lui ressemblent. Tu vois, je suis franc. Oui, c'est bien. Tu m'as appris à un autre jeu. On se ressemble plus. At the end of the conversation, he's like, I love both of you equally, but in different ways. And then the next two shots are static shots of these shot fronts that say um, confiance and assurances, which I think is really funny. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very Varda-esque. And I think flowers kind of tie into that. It's like we all think of flowers as like a little little spot of happiness, especially when we bring them into our houses. Yeah, exactly. And he he talks about like the, I mean, again, I think bogus is a good word for everything he says, but um, uh, he talks about like nature um, is sort of like, oh, my wife is like the sturdy plant and you Emily, mm-hmm. are like the wild animal. 
it's just all these like weird he's just like yeah just it's natural what I'm doing and like happiness is additive and I'm just like expanding uh the joy in all of our lives which is such a like I don't know if you've got friends who have like stereotypical divorce dads but I certainly do and I feel like always the narrative sorry there's a dog next to me and she is burping um (laughs) it's not me um but a lot of times it's like men who get divorced especially in their 40s they're like I feel like I need to live life in the fast lane and I wasn't meant to be settled down like I feel like I'm missing out on life they use this argument of like it's my manly nature to like not want to be settled down and then they ditch someone with kids that are still like in high school or middle school or whatever who invariably have to like stay in their suburban town or whatever just like stay put in their roles yeah yeah it really reminded me of that like super divorced middle-aged dude rhetoric of like i gotta sow my wild oats which like i hate that term but like this movie really (laughs) makes me think of it but he like on top of that francois is also like deluding himself Mm because he's like telling his coworkers like oh like one woman that's for me and like i just don't stop loving and i'm in like fidelity is my Mm -hmm. middle name like (laughs) <laughs> he's just completely unaware of like just like that you're making doing. him sound like he's like a Norman Rockwell I character know. <laughs> man <laughs> one woman's enough for me yeah yes sorry <laughs> oh god um but yeah and, and then in the end like obviously like he kind of he fucks himself and like he doesn't get to have that duality of like this sturdy plant versus this wild animal that he has to chase down and like then Emily we all know like I mean we you and me both know that like Emily just straight up replaces Therese and then just becomes that sturdy plant anyway and it's really unsettling but like at the same time he doesn't seem that bothered about it still he's very placid and happy and whatever Although this time it's it's autumn and everything's dying around him, so that's some symbolism, probably. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Nothing is a coincidence. Yeah, also an indication that, like, not that much time had passed. I know! I was like, straight this up was replaced like, her. <laughs> probably, like, four months. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, he's not bothered, and, like, seemingly no one is bothered. Mm-hmm. Like, there's all the just scenes of him like chatting it up with his coworkers again and the the kids are just running around um mm-hmm. she's picking him up at school and like no one is like blanking at this you kind of have this realization there's this whole montage where like emily is replacing therese and um you kind of realize like these kids are like probably three years old and like my first memories are after that and like these there's a strong chance that these kids aren't going to remember their real mother um and it's just really really upsetting to think about um I also think it's interesting how Emily's appearance kind of alters in that montage like for me like her her hair is the most striking thing about me like it's obviously the very like Sylvie Vartan look but it's also like super humanly shiny um and when you're cutting between Emily and Therese throughout the whole movie you're like oh Therese's hair is like kind of dull and brown compared to Emily's um and Emily's hair just slowly gets like a little duller 
throughout this montage and she's wearing like higher necked shirts and dresses and things like that mm-hmm. yeah and that's something i noticed for um therese as well throughout the movie minus the recurrence of the dress that she dies in but like her costumes generally get more matronly mm-hmm. as the movie goes on um but she still looks yeah. so cute like she looks so good oh, she's adorable yeah um, her in those dancing scenes, just kind of like smiling at whatever partner she has. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, you poor thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know it's it's kind of I like that she does that. Varda did that because it's like you kind of feel like, am I the one that's going crazy? Um, mm-hmm. And it kind of makes you it makes you really angry as as it should. Generally, what I love about Varda's work is there's so much faith in the audience to like just sit with these feelings and she'll not she's not going to answer them Mm -hmm. um and like sort of going back to what your professor said of like watching that end scene where they kind of walk off in the distance in the autumn it's like okay that harkens back to that opening credit shot yeah and then Um, you realize like we don't know which iteration of this family we were seeing in the beginning and it's all the more sinister yeah exactly Mm -hmm. um i also it the part that really breaks my heart about this movie is like when he's telling therese about the affair Tu sais que je n'aime pas mentir. Tu es triste Je ne sais pas, je t'écoute. Ne sois pas triste. C'est simple, tu sais. Toi et moi, il est petit. On est comme un champ planté de pommiers. Un champ carré bien net. Et puis j'aperçois un pommier qui a poussé en dehors du champ, en dehors du carré, et qui fleurit en même temps que nous. Ce sont des fleurs en plus, des pommes en plus. Ça s'ajoute. Tu comprends Oui, je crois. Il y a quelqu'un d'autre qui t'aime comme moi She just seems so cornered and like they are in the middle of nowhere. Well, we think they're in the middle of nowhere in the woods, like in their picnic spot. And he's saying like, you're so good to me, like for letting me have this other woman in my life blah 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 but it's like does she have a choice like she has children and she lives in this like tiny town and everyone knows her so like how else would she be able to react it's just really heartbreaking yeah Yeah, you almost see her like resignation um to like the easier path which is to just be like yeah it's okay i can love you just as much if not more Mm -hmm. now um and and I think the like choreography of that scene too, um, how it echoes, sort of the scene of um, we were just talking about of Emily and Francois in bed, that sort of postcoital conversation, um, where like now Therese is like desperately tr- kept trying to turn away, and he just keeps like grabbing her and making her face him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's totally coercive. Mm-hmm. Um, and their bed is in a corner and. I just want to know, like, if this character is based on anybody, like, if Francois is based on anybody that she knew, or, like, because I just think it's, like, outstanding how duplicitous he is in the, in the stupidest way. Like, you can tell that he's, like, kind of a bonehead, but, like, doesn't know that. <laughs> and he thinks he's, like, discovered this new mode of having a relationship um, that other people just haven't caught on to yet. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so much in Francois is, like, stuff that I feel like I encounter. Mm-hmm. Like, the number of times that I've had conversations with men about, like, you say you want to be polyamorous, but, like, do you really know what that means? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Like, I, I think that they 
a lot of people don't really understand, especially men don't understand, like, the dynamics of that kind of relationship. But they talk about it like they're really revolutionary. <laughs> like, they themselves are, like, leading the cause. Gotta love men. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm sure that Anya Sparta encountered this behavior in yeah. many different people. Again, she's French. <laughs> exactly. Um, and super interesting that, like, because I think by this point she and Jacques Demy are married, right? I don't know. I was trying to figure that out. Um, I just, I just did a quick Google. It says that they got married in 62. So they had been married, like, a few years. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how he felt about these movies. I know. <laughs> um, Part of the reason she made this movie is because she really loved picnics. And Jacques Demy apparently, like, hated picnics. Oh, my God. And would do it for her occasionally, but just didn't enjoy himself. So she was like, I'm just going to make a movie where we're always having picnics. Oh, my God. Which is awesome. <laughs> and then I drown myself. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that, like, people had strong negative feelings about picnics. They seem delightful. I feel like they're so variable. Like, usually they're pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's really funny. Um, I kind of also wonder a lot of the time, like, how she felt about being married and, like, if she, um, how she felt about, like, motherhood in general. Um, because I know that, like, one of her other favorite artists was Nikki de Saint-Fel, who made a lot of, like, early in her career, made a lot of performance art that was about, like, hating being a mother and, like, kind of rejecting it. Um... And then later in life, her career was kind of all about, like, embracing womanhood um, and just, like, the natural form of woman and all this kind of stuff. And I just, yeah, I really wonder what her relationship to being a mother was like, especially at that time as someone who, like, there had to be kind of that choice of, like, I'm going to work or, like, be a mom, especially in France. Um, And she did do both very, very well. Yeah, so. and you and I have talked about, like, how motherhood kind of pervades her work. Like, we're going to be talking about daguerreotype in a few episodes, but mm-hmm. just sort of that, like, how she was literally, the circumference of her production was, like, limited based on her pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorites is um Mouf, that short. Oh, yeah. Um, Diary of a Pregnant Woman, I think is the English name. And... Um, yeah, it's just, like, all, like, pervaded with her sort of anxiety over, like, about mm-hmm. having a child for the first time. Yeah, I think it's interesting because she doesn't really have any other films that are about any other kind of family dynamic. Like, it's, like, really only about, like, motherhood and, like, being a mother. Not even, like, about the relationship with your child, but more, like, about your relationship with being called a mother or just being that figure in someone else's life. I think yeah. it's very interesting. The kids in these in this movie are so cute. It's worth noting. So goddamn like, cute. A oh French kid. Mm, so cute. <laughs> kid speaking French. <laughs> when she holds the bell peppers up to her eyes. Oh. oh. Yeah, like, oh my god. Um, Do you want to switch over to Lay? I'm going to be honest. I yeah. found the creatures like really hard to follow and i feel like i was too stupid for it let's talk about it because i felt the same way yeah i was just like oh my god am i dumb 
Um, that movie was crazy. Yeah. Um, also, like, what is with French movies and having, like, beautiful, angelic women paired with someone who's, like, 40 years older? <laughs> and it's, like, <laughs> totally normal. <laughs> and, like, this crusty-ass dude with this, like, angelic <laughs> woman. Uh, but, yeah. It's the Gerard Depardieu effect. Does she ever leave the house in the whole movie Um, no like the people in the town don't even know she exists yeah i don't think she does and i couldn't tell if that was in some way because of her being mute Mm -hmm. by her choice or his choice or something and she just kind of hid away um but like that whole scene where the like linen salesman come to the door and she just kind of like peeks through that like upper window and like mm-hmm. kind of shrinks away and tries to warn him not and to she, go to the door. And she she has like a it looks like they have like a jerry rigged like peephole where there's like a system of mirrors through yeah. which she can see people like downwards, which I think is interesting. Right, because like, he's upside down or whatever mm-hmm. in that shot, which I think is interesting. It's like a little. It is. Te- it is literally a fort. So it is like a little fortress for her and her alone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's like a fucked up princess in an ivory tower. Yep. Situation. Which I also think not that long after this, she played that princess in um, Donkey Skin. I don't know if you've seen oh, that. Yeah. Another um, fucked up movie. <laughs> yeah, and like obviously she's like an ideal of French beauty, so she's like basically a princess of France. Yeah. Do you want to like briefly just bare bones recap? what this movie's about because i feel like i could use that yeah sure um so he is a writer we're not sure what kind um it looks like they're uh like kind of in a what is the name of that place in france uh mall saint-michel like that kind of place where it's like a little island that gets isolated by the tide and the water washes over it um so it's only accessible through certain hours um and if there's one thing Anya's Varda loves, it's the ocean and tides and all the gross creatures that come out of the ocean. So there's a <laughs> lot of that in this. Um, but yeah, he's a writer trying to write something. We don't know what. Um, and he's in this village where everybody is just like, it's kind of almost David Lynchian, where like everybody's like looks like a normal person, but like the way they act is just like one click off from reality. Um, and you're kind of questioning what is his, like, writer brain inventing things. Um, sorry, there's another dog near the microphone. Um, and, uh, you don't know what's reality. And so your kind of only context clues are these, like, weird, um, color filters that come over. The- it's a black and white film. Um, and there's these weird color filters, either, like, red or pink, that come over the screen when something like insane is happening um so there are a lot of these everyday situations like at the local hotel um in places like that just like the bakery or the general store where a situation will escalate so that kind of happens over and over and then towards the end which i think should have happened earlier in the film um he goes to play, again, we're not sure if this is actually happening, he goes to play this deranged game of chess with this 
fellow writer in town who lives in kind of like a uh, like an Edgar Allan Poe like <laughs> castle thing um and they play chess with these very advanced for this time in filmmaking history um it's kind of like this special effects thing where all the villagers are on this chessboard and there's like a toy story claw machine thing <laughs> over it is the best way i can describe it and it's like a really dinky prop and it like looks really cheap but it's really funny um and they're basically playing god with um all the villagers and they kind of pick and choose these situations to get them stuck into and force them to interact with people they wouldn't normally interact with in certain ways um and then somehow they get in an argument and then um the main character whose name I can't remember because I'm awful with character names pushes the guy he's playing chess with out of a window and then onto this like glass house thing and then he dies so let me know if that's correct (laughs) That that's about what I got. Um, what I'd add is that like during that chess game, I guess the notion is that like our main character, um, Edgar, is that his name? Yeah, it's um, something. It was a name where like when Catherine Deneuve said it, I was like, really, that's his name. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I know that he his last name is also Piccoli, which is the actor's last name. Yeah, I noticed that too. Oh, and he has this scar on his forehead, which is never explained unless i missed that i think it's from i took it to be from the accident so the Mm -hmm. the movie opens with a car accident yep pour me faire plaisir roule moi vite pour me faire plaisir laisse moi rouler j'aime ça quand je roule vite mes idées vont vite j'imagine des trucs C'est comme d'être au bord de la mer. Tu verras, on sera bien. On cherchera une maison à louer. On sera tranquille, tous les deux. Et puis on se promènera. Oui, mon amour, nous serons très bien. Mais ne roule pas si vite. he's going too fast and she's being like hey can you please slow down and he's again maybe in that sort of like midlife crisis mode male is like no i just go fast and then my thoughts are free i'm mm-hmm. in the open road and, <laughs> midlife crisis male <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then just uh of course crashes um and i think i took it that from that accident he gets the scar and she becomes mute then fast forward however many years and they're living in that weird fort thing in this weird village of like suspicious villagers and yeah what I was going to add earlier is that during that chess game I guess the notion is that like this main character is a force for good and for love Mm -hmm. whereas this other writer Ducasse I think is his name um is sort of like the embodiment of evil and whenever he gets to like play God and control these villagers, he tries to make, like, the worst thing happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then their fight at the end is when he takes it too far in the main character's eyes, and, like, I think it's the scene where he is, like, about to have this girl, like, molested. Yeah. And then, yeah, Michelle Pigley's character, like, 
tries to beat him up and they go on this tower and then the bad guy falls and crashes through mm-hmm. the glass and and I guess the whole thing is that like it's not really clear that our main character could have just been imagining this entire thing as he's like writing mm-hmm. and you don't know until the next day that it did happen right right and then but then he's like oh I never met him mm-hmm. it's a very confusing movie yeah part of me I wonder if it's confusing to us as like modern viewers or if it's actually if it was contemporarily very hard to follow or like because I feel like it could also just be that like you and I are not as fluent in the film language of that time I saw like an, there was an interview intro to the movie on the blu-ray where it was like on his in 2007 or something and she mentions that it was not well received and that I guess apparently like the same producer made this and made Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Yeah, I just I just time. looked her up. Apparently she was an Italian powerhouse producer. Oh, it's there like, you go. Her filmography is insane. Oh, what's her name? Uh, Mag Bodar. But yeah, she also did Donkey Skin, so. Damn. Shit, which is okay. a weird yeah. movie. Also very, very interesting, like, because I think female, female producers were not, like, super common around that time, so. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I guess Anya Svarta was saying in this interview that, like, she made a shit ton of money on Umbrellas of Cherbourg and lost a shit ton of money on <laughs> Les Creatures. It's um, funny because this did not look expensive, but I'm sure that those special effects that were there for, like, yeah, ten minutes were, like, all, the whole budget. <laughs> it all went into the claw. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I guess it wasn't well-received and certainly is not a movie in her filmography that people talk about. Yeah, I'm gonna be honest, I forgot it existed until you told me to watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one that I've seen the poster around, and I've not known what it's about at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one I would want to see again, I guess, to maybe to try to understand it a little better. Um, how it sort of tied um, this, like, God role with just the, like, role of being a creator mm-hmm. and an artist, like, of any sort um I thought that was like definitely interesting and the last scene where because um Catherine Deneuve's character is like pregnant for most of the movie and somehow like she is at stake in this chess game Mm -hmm. um, which is never really clear what that means but the film ends with the birth of their child and like the doctor's like oh you're almost finished and Michelle Pickley is like oh yeah I'm almost done with my novel and the doctor's oh, like, no, God. I'm talking to your wife who's, like, giving birth right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's like, oh, oh, right, right. Um, and then the last shot is, like, the newborn child, and they're like, it's a boy, which I feel like is also pretty pointed. Um, <laughs> yeah, my partner was watching the last, like, five minutes with me, and he, at the end, when the baby is shown, he's like, why does it look like that? And I was like, that's what all newborn babies look like. <laughs> it's, like, actually the only accurate newborn I've seen in a movie. <laughs> Yeah, they're gross as hell. Yep. <laughs> it's interesting also because I think the little scenes of them just being like a married couple are actually, I thought they were kind of sweet. Like they were actually pretty nice and they felt very real, um, very affectionate. Um, and then it's like balls to the walls insane every time he leaves this house. Not until like the end is like, only because the movie literally ends right when the doctor's like, it's a boy and you see the kind of ugly baby screaming 
um, it cuts right there, and you're like, oh, that was kind of sinister. And that's the only time, like, within, literally inside that house where you're like, something's kind of weird here as well. Um, Definitely. Um, the whole movie sort of feels like there are these, like, almost supernatural forces that are, like, threatening to invade their space and their little mm-hmm. home that they're making. Like, probably most apparently in those two, um, like, linen salesman crooks. Mm-hmm. Who show up and... Yeah, and you can tell that he's really distressed that they know where he lives now. Um, almost like he was trying to keep it secret. And keep her safe. There's, like, a scene where they're having a meal in their home, and there's that, like, incredible framed crab. Yeah, oh, and it looks like it's, like, holding its chest. Yeah, it's, like, so visceral. And... There, there's all these like just cuts to the ocean and it's so the score comes in and it's that crazy like atonal very unsettling score um, but it just cuts back and forth between that and like the silence of their home mm-hmm. and it just feels like oh, the ocean is, like, creeping in, mm-hmm. and this, like, island is gonna get swallowed up. Yeah, I, for one, am very scared of the ocean. I respect it, because it needs to be respected, and I found that the ocean was, like, really scary in this movie. Yeah, I think it's meant to be, definitely. Yeah, it is pretty, and I think at one point he says, because he also talks to animals in a few scenes. Yeah, I was just about to ask you how you felt about those scenes. Oh, uh, I can't say I was totally into the talking animals. Mm-hmm. I thought it was it was the only parts in the whole movie where I was like where I kind of felt Anya's Varda's like tone and presence in the writing. Like I thought everything else was kind of not like the rest of her filmography or even like the way that she speaks and conducts herself in real life. Um mm. I thought those scenes were like the only like whimsical thing in the entire movie, which I thought was otherwise like pretty dark. Um <laughs> they kind of felt like out of place, but also it was nice to be like, okay, this is an Anya's Varda film after all, because <laughs> this man is talking to a rabbit. Yeah, maybe I'm fucked up, but I was laughing at the part where he's like beating that family with a dead cat. Yeah, oh my god. What? <laughs> also, he was holding it for so long. I was like, so, just put it's so it clearly down. a stuffed animal. <laughs> I know. The only thing that were like kind of flopping around were the legs. Oh yep. god. But yeah, like. It was very strange, especially coming from a director who's obsessed with cats. Like, that dead cat gets a lot of screen time, mm-hmm. and it is it is wielded as a weapon against four people. Yeah. Some of this movie kind of felt like a, a humorous echo of La Pointe Court a little bit. Mm-hmm. Cause like, there's so much imagery of, like, the crabs and the nets and the crates that really reminded me of that movie. Mm-hmm. And then also there's that shot of the dead cat in the front court, which is like very uh, sad and like kind of a symbol for like that central couple's uh, kind of deteriorating marriage. Um, so this just felt like, like a hyper exaggerated, ridiculous version of some of those themes and motifs and images that I was like, I don't know if I totally vibed with. Yeah, it was like almost farcical. And it's also the first time in the film where like that kind of red, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the the color filter comes over the screen like right before mm-hmm. he starts beating them with the dead cat. 
and that's the first time that that happens I think in the movie um it's just like like it's a hell of the time to like introduce someone beating someone with a dead cat and it's supposed to be like like a reality mind bending uh kind of scene um it's just really funny that it's just like kind of silly but maybe it's because as like people in 2021 we know that it's a fake cat (laughs) because it doesn't look remotely real yeah it's very very odd and she doesn't return to the color filter for a while yet so for a Mm -hmm. while i just thought it was like oh he's seeing red like he's really angry yeah me too that's what Um, i thought (laughs) yeah (laughs) if i find any further like writing about it or yeah, Stop. please let I'll me know. Your way. Yeah, I, I think research. I need I need someone to tell me what to think. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, let's switch to Elsa La Rose. Yeah. Um, Did you watch the little like intro thing that they had on? You said you had the Blu-rays, which means you're better than um, me. But they is have that a... the one where she talks about how it was originally like a kind of joint thing with yeah. Jacques to me as well. Yeah. Yeah. The idea was that Jacques to me would make a movie in which Elsa recounts, like, the childhood of Louis, and then vice versa, Agnes was going to make this film about Elsa, um, mm-hmm. kind of through the perspective of Louis, and, um, and then Jacques Demi, like, bailed, kind of last minute. Yeah, it sounded like um, he had, uh, other stuff going on or something. Yeah. Um. So it was just this movie that was made. But I guess for, like, the listener's sake, we should say that it's, like, a, it kind of all got smushed into one film a little bit and he louis aragon who if you're a poetry person i guess that means something to you um but he's kind of recounting her life before they met um Mm -hmm. and it's very very poetic and you have this narrator um who she purposefully directed to read aragon's poems faster and faster so it gets like really chaotic À l'ombre, les oiseaux c'est l'océan troublé, puis le beau temps soudain se lève et tes yeux changent, les détails, la nuit au tablier des anges, le ciel n'est jamais bleu comme il l'est sur les blés. L'enfant accaparé par les belles images écarquillées, les siens, moi les mesures vraiment, quand tu fais des grands yeux, je ne sais si tu mens, on dirait que la verre s'ouvre les fleurs sauvages. Cache-t-il des éclairs dans cette lavande où des insectes défont leurs amours violents, je suis pris au filet des étoiles filantes comme un marin qui meurt en mer en plein mois d'août. Ô oh, paradis sans foi, retrouvé, reperdu, tes yeux sont mon Pérou, ma Golconde, mes Indes. Il advint qu'un beau soir, l'univers se brisa sur des récifs que les naufrageurs enflammèrent. Mais je voyais briller au-dessus de la mer les yeux d'Elsa, les yeux d'Elsa, les yeux d'Elsa. And it's basically just these like super effusive love poems about his wife. Yeah, um, and it there's intercut some interviews like Elsa does speak in the movie, mm-hmm. and that's probably my favorite part of the movie. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, I thought it was so interesting what she said about, like, how because of these love poems, all the sort of Aragon fans just expect her to be 20 years old forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just that, about like, to bring that up. Uh, yeah, it's so heartbreaking. And it makes, like, of course, <laughs> she can't do that. And she was saying that it just, like, makes her sad that um, that's the expectation and that also these poems, like, they don't, belong to just her there are these shared things that almost are like to a certain point not about her anymore Mm -hmm. which is something like I I turned 27 last year I'm about to be 28 and like there I know I'm not old or anything but like there is a point when like things 
stop being made like for you like I tried to buy some clothes really last minute for something last week and I had to like go to a bunch of fast fashion shops and I was like the stuff is made for people who are 20 and I'm not that anymore um and I also just got married so I doubly feel like I'm an old maid and so watching this I almost cried because like this whole week I've been having this crisis of like oh my god, I'm old, and, like, I don't matter to anyone other than, like, my partner anymore, which is, like, great. I love mattering to him, because I love him a lot. (laughs) Um, But, um, yeah, I just, I I thought it was really heartbreaking that, like, it is hard, especially, like, as a woman and, like, sometimes feminine-presenting person, like, it's hard grappling with that idea of, like, oh, I am still lovable, even if, like, I'm not the demographic that everything revolves around anymore. Um, yeah. But yeah. And we don't talk about like being loved when you're older, being lovable or or anything, especially if you're a woman. It's really, really sad. Absolutely. And I feel like that ties right in with LeBonar and what we were sort of saying about like that kind of matronly transformation um, mm-hmm. of both women. Um especially in the context of marriage and partnership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I love what she said about, because I think it's Anya Sparta's voice off screen, says like, do these poems make you feel really loved? And she is like, yeah, she was like, no, it's not the poems that make me feel loved. It's everything else. It's life. It's such a beautiful sentiment. Incredible. And it's interesting that, like, I don't... I wonder how Aragon feels about that or if they, like, actively talked about that, about, like, what his poems became once they were, like, you know, onto the page and out in the world and in some ways had nothing to do with Elsa anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, clearly these are his tributes and he's madly in love but like as she sort of pointed out it was like her presence in his life at least seemingly that like gave him confidence and direction and like kind of set him on the course of being this huge figure in French Mm -hmm. poetry um that again it's that sort of that muse figure that doesn't really get um Mm -hmm. recognized as she should And it's interesting, especially with poetry, which is often something that's, like, recited or given as a gift to people that, to and from people that haven't written the poetry. Like, if you are the person who the thing is about, at what point, and it becomes published or widespread, like, at what point does that stop being about you or belonging to you? It must be, like, a very interesting thing to grapple with, especially at that time, (laughs) Um, like she was literally like in her like youngest adult years in the 30s I think yeah and I I feel it could easily lead to sort of a crisis moment in someone's life but mm-hmm. she seems to like and I love her she seems to just like have the best perspective on all of that mm-hmm. and also like I loved the opening of this movie where he's sort of still saying like oh Elsa's so mysterious and I never know what she's thinking and like Mm -hmm. even my memories of when we first met like I don't really even remember and then it cuts to her and she's like that's funny that you say that like I have pretty 
precise memories and this is what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sort of like totally deconstructs his like, oh, like kind of mythical vision of her. I also think it's funny that like as someone in a long term relationship, it's like you kind of I don't know if it's just me and my partner, but like we talk a lot about like when we first met and we're first getting to know each other because it's really I don't know, there's something alluring about like trying to capture the person that your partner was right before they met you. Um, and what they were thinking about you. My partner and I do the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I think everyone just really wants to know, or most people just really are dying to know what people perceive them as. And I think it's funny and, like, totally badass that Elsa's like, I don't give a fuck, like, what he thought about me when I was, like, being pursued by him. Because, like, me, I'm nosy and, like, annoying, and I would love to know what everyone thinks of me at all times. <laughs> um... I just think it's so funny that she's like, okay, guy. Um, But yeah, I just think it's funny. Like at one point in my life, I was like, oh, I want to be like with someone so badly and be super comfortable with them. And now that I have that, we talk about when we were like really awkward around each other. Yeah, the good old days. But yeah, there's just something so... And like the whole film is about him being so intrigued by her um, before they met and how they would have these like chance encounters again at Le Dome Cafe. Um, mm-hmm. Clearly a hot spot. They don't have Wi-Fi, once again, if you're planning on going there and studying. <laughs> yeah, no literal no, hotspot. <laughs> no hotspot, but a hotspot. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's just funny that the whole film is about like the intrigue of someone right before you meet them. And also just that Anya Sparta has them, like, reenact those moments, mm-hmm. too, is so funny. <laughs> I know. And, like, such an Anya Sparta thing to do. Um, yeah. She, like, loved old people mm-hmm. even before she became, like, an iconic old person. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then she loved young people who loved old people. Mm-hmm. I also just love, I think, the way, and we'll talk about this when we talk about Daguerreotype, but, like... The questions she asks people, I think, are just, like, so insightful. Like, asking someone if love poems make you feel loved, like, I don't think anyone else would ask her that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it it honestly evoked the most beautiful part of the whole movie is that line about how that's not what makes her feel loved, but it's, in fact, like, the everyday and the mundane of life with this yeah. person. Just, I don't know how she does it, but so unobtrusively and yet, like, insightfully kind of inserts herself in that and, like, can distill these truths um, from people who, yeah, have, like, been in this relationship for literally decades. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like that is a lovely note to end on. Thank you, Susan. This was rad. Well, I hope I was coherent at all you absolutely <laughs> this was awesome you're incredibly easy to talk to okay i just haven't talked about movies in a serious way in about two years yeah that's fine i the last episode for the podcast came out back in like june so i'm super rusty <laughs> so apologies <laughs> to you and the listener about that but um, i think it will be i think it'll be great i think it'll cut together beautifully i'll fix it in post um but seriously. <laughs> As they say, <laughs> that's my whole life. <laughs> <laughs>